You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. I invite you to return to John chapter 19. John 19. We'll be reading through uh, verses 1 through 16. And I think as we're um, really winding to a close in John's gospel, I think the next book up is going to be Galatians, but I invite your prayers in that. But uh, I'm thinking to my measure of faith, Galatians is next. So I've mentioned it to a few of you and seem pretty excited about that. So, But please, I ask for your prayers. Um, John 19, verse 1, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. And when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And the Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. And when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. And everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, He brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover, and it was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Heavenly Father, we look to you, old Father, as we have already prayed and as we've already begun to pray, and I know many of us have already been praying. If we're to profit from this reading of your word and we're to profit from this study of your word, Father, we do require that you teach us. We pray, O Father, that you'd be pleased to teach us from your word, that, Father, you would teach us not only what these words mean, what you mean by these words, what the Holy Spirit intended and inspiring these words in the human author's heart. But, Father, you would also make application of these words to our hearts, that you would take us, O Father, from where we are presently and make us more and more like Jesus. We pray these things in his precious name. Amen. Well, in recent weeks, we've been following Jesus and his disciples. We have followed him Uh, into the Garden of Gethsemane, from the upper room into the Garden of Gethsemane. There we have seen him arrested. Uh, We have seen him in in chapter 18, verse 12, 13, brought before Annas, 
We've talked about that. Why being brought before Annas instead of Caius with Caiaphas? We've looked at that. We've seen that Annas gets nowhere with Jesus. So in verse 24 of chapter 18, we see that Caiaphas is then, or, or Jesus is then brought to Caiaphas. He's taken from Annas to Caiaphas. And then last week in verse 28 of chapter 18, we find Jesus now being brought before Pilate. And we observed that uh, John doesn't record the proceedings that, um, that go between Caiaphas and Jesus. The other gospel writers do. And from the writings of the other gospels, from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, we learn that Jesus is charged with blasphemy. And we've also taken notice that uh, the charge of blasphemy is not going to get Jesus crucified in a Roman court. Uh, that was a, a, according to Jewish law, and in, we're going to see here Jewish law is important uh, to Pilate. It's important to the Romans. Uh, but that in and of itself is not going to get Jesus crucified. So they trump up the charge of sedition or treason, and they bring this charge of treason to Pilate. And Jesus is brought before Pilate. And if you look at chapter 18, verse 33, as a matter of review and also to help some who haven't heard the last couple of messages catch up, there we see Pilate, uh, he enters his headquarters and he begins to question Jesus. And you'll notice Jesus comes right out and asks him point blank, are you king of the Jews? So Pilate has heard the charge of sedition. Of course he has heard the charge of sedition. We know that when Jesus is arrested in the garden, that there is a company of Roman soldiers as well as temple police in the garden. You're not going to get a, car, a, a, um, a company of Ro Roman soldiers in that garden without Pilate's okay. And to get Pilate's okay, certainly some kind of charge is going to have to be brought to his ears. So Pilate is aware of this, and he asks Jesus the question, are you king of the Jews? And we noticed last week... Some of you will recall that Pilate begins the interrogation only to have the interrogation flipped. Pilate asks the question, are you king of the Jews? And notice verse 34, how Jesus answers him. He says, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Now, if you were a fly on the wall, <laughs> this isn't a normal proceeding that takes place in a normal court. Say What? Now, what is Jesus doing? We looked at that a little bit last week. What is Jesus doing? Well, the answer is yes and no. It all depends. Pilate is asking Jesus if he's a king. Is Jesus a king? Well, the answer is yes. But is he a king in the sense that the high priests are saying? In other words, is Jesus a king? Is Jesus trying to usurp the Roman seat? And the answer to that is no. And furthermore, Jesus is, he's asking some really heart-searching questions of Pilate. You know, it, it is possible that Pilate has heard Jesus' message. He's heard of the, certainly he's heard of the miracles. Certainly he's heard of uh, some of the things that have been going on at Jesus and his disciples. He's heard something of the message. Uh, perhaps this is a meeting kind of like Nicodemus. You know, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night and has questions. Uh, maybe Pilate is wrestling, if you will. Maybe he's wrestling. Is Jesus really who he says and claims to be? Of course, Jesus knows the answer to all these questions, but he's taken Pilate through this exercise for Pilate's own good. But the point that I want to show here is that Jesus is in charge. He's fully in charge. And... 
He asks Pilate, tell me, you say this of your own or did others say it about you? Notice how Pilate answers in verse 35. He says, am I a Jew? Now, I didn't bring this out last week, but I want to take this one step further now. What is, what is Pilate basically saying? He's saying, Jesus, are you making yourself out to be my king? Okay, if you're king of the Jews, that's fine. But I'm not a Jew, I'm a Roman. Are you, are you trying to make yourself my king? And the irony of this is, Jesus is his king. And we're going to see irony all through this whole thing. So Pilate says, verse 35, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answers, verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. And I brought this out last week. Surely Pilate understands that when the Roman soldiers went into the garden looking for Jesus, that Jesus didn't hide from them. You know, this whole thing is bizarre. Jesus doesn't run and hide. They're coming in with torches and lanterns because it's pitch black, practically. Well, probably not pitch black. The moon could have perhaps been out if it wasn't cloudy that night. But it's dark. There would have been plenty of places for Jesus to hide. But he doesn't. And other than Peter drawing his sword and, and cutting off the ear of Malchus, which Jesus quickly reverses by healing him, there's been no resistance whatsoever. In fact, you can almost imagine the, the, the Roman soldiers coming back and the captain of the guard coming back and saying, you know, this has been one of the weirdest, strangest apprehensions we've ever had. The guy we're looking for, he stepped forward and introduced himself to us. And Jesus is making note of that. He said, listen, my kingdom's not of this world. If my kingdom was of this world, I'd be doing what kingdoms of this world do. I'd have an army, we'd be fighting. Then Pilate says to him in verse 37, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. You see, it's amazing. the more you study this, the, the more you see Jesus completely in control. He says, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Whoa. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. There's a distinction, isn't there? There's a distinction between those who are of the truth and those who are not of the truth. And how do we tell the difference? Those who are of the truth listen to his voice. Those who are not of the truth pay no mind to him. How is Pilate? Pilate is given a decision there. What's Pilate say? Verse 38, he says, what is truth? He brushes him off. Pilate has his own ideas going on. Pilate, we can see he's increasingly wanting nothing to do with this. He realizes, and we're going to see this more and more as we push into chapter 19, more and more this, we see he wants rid of this. He wants to wash his hands of this. He wants completely out of this, but he's got his own mind. He's being, his own ideas. He's being wise in his own eyes. And he's got this idea. If you look at verse, oh, verse 38, uh, the middle of verse 38, he went back outside to the Jews, told him, I find no guilt in him. Verse 39, you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. And last week, uh, one of the last things we brought out of the text there is Pilate miscalculates the hatred towards Jesus, doesn't he? And, it's, and we can make application of that right now. That's a problem that's been going on in every generation ever since, where we miscalculate the amount of hatred 
that we have towards Jesus. I can tell you a story from my own, out of my own experience, which I've shared many times. You remember way back in the music store days, you know, when I first started following Jesus, first started really walking with the Lord, I was so, so excited to tell people about Jesus. And then I believed all we needed to do was just give some information, just teach people, just share the gospel. And surely they're going to, once they see how beautiful this is, they're going to want to follow Jesus. And some of you are smiling. You know the story, but you don't even need to know the story to know what the outcome is going to be. I got clobbered in there. And some of the people who are clobber me are people that you would refer, if I mentioned names, some of you would know some of the names, so I'm not. But you would consider these people some of the nicest folks in our community. But what comes out when you bring Jesus? What comes out? Oftentimes we call it indifference, but keep in mind indifference is a form of hatred. Sometimes you'll, you'll see, uh, sometimes the news will, will show clips of somebody being injured on a street and people just walking past them like nothing's ever happened. Has anybody ever seen videos like that? Once in a while you'll see videos. And that, that indifference, that's not love. What does love do? Love comes to the aid of someone. Love takes an interest in someone. Love, is, is, love cares uh, about the welfare of someone else. Indifference is indeed a form of, to be indifferent is a form of hatred. Pilate miscalculates this. He gives them the chance, which I think in Pilate's mind is a no-brainer. Barabbas is a known insurrectionist, and he's a murderer, and he's a robber. Given these two choices, surely they're going to pick Jesus. But what do they do in verse 40? Not this man, but Barabbas. The fallen human heart is not just a little bit off. It's not just a little bit off. It's more than that. And it's often... It's often uh, misdiagnosed where we're led to believe that all we need is a little education, just a little help, and we'll be on the right path. No, actually what we need is a miracle to take place in our hearts. We need our hearts to be completely changed. Nothing short of that is going to bring us home. Um, now, this takes us to chapter 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And it's, it's, a, it's, it's really surprising, isn't it? Because Pilate believes that Jesus is innocent. And we say to ourselves, why would he have Jesus flogged? And I, I think uh, what's going on, for sure what's going on here, what Pilate is up to is he's got another idea. The first idea has failed. He's got another idea. And you should know that um, scholars are, are divided over what kind of flogging this is in John chapter 19, verse 1. You know, I, I didn't know this for the longest time, but it, the Romans had three forms of flogging. They had a, a form of flogging that was a lighter form, if you will, and it was for what we call today misdemeanors. You know, if you're out just being a public nuisance, they would give you a flogging, uh, and basically it was an act of humiliation. And I'm sure it smarted. Um, so... It was going to be, you know, it was going to be something you wouldn't want to repeat. But it wasn't as severe as the flogging that we read about, say, in Matthew's gospel or Mark's gospel. And I think, um, I, I side with those scholars who think that's the form of flogging that Jesus gets right here. Um, there was a second form of flogging that was a little more severe than the first, and it was for more serious crimes. And that would be something um, that I'm not going to go into the descriptions but um, that would definitely be something you wouldn't want to repeat. 
the flogging that we read about in Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel is the one we're all too familiar with, where two Roman soldiers with whips, with pottery or spikes sewn to the end of the whips, beat the victim until they're exhausted. Uh, people died from that form of flogging, and that form of flogging was reserved for those who were about to be crucified. We know that Jesus endured that, no question. But it appears that this flogging right here was a lighter beating that Jesus took before that. I think what Pilate is up to here, I think without doubt, is Pilate is thinking, listen, we'll take him. If we put it in common uh, everyday language today, you can almost imagine Pilate saying to one of his soldiers, take him in the back, humiliate him really good, rough him up a little bit, we'll bring him out, hopefully we'll see some sympathy for him, and they'll let him go. Pilate wants to release him. That's why I don't really believe Pilate would have given him the most severest form of punishment at this point. Can't say for sure. There are different words being used in John 19.1 than there are in Matthew and Mark's gospel. It does appear that this is a lighter, uh, a lighter form of flogging that's, that's taking place here. But what happens? Jesus is taken. He is flogged. And we're told in verses 2 and 3 that the soldiers mistreat him. They twist together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head. Um, this crown of thorns is really significant. You'll hear a lot of people talk about the, the thorns being from the, the, um, the uh, date plant. I forget the actual. So there's a Latin term that some people use for it. I'm not a botanist. I'm not even like... Give me your plants and flowers and I will kill them. In fact, I could kill them quicker than anyone else could possibly kill them. I do not have a green thumb. Um, but the point isn't what kind of plant that this crown of thorns was made of. The point is the thorns. This takes us back to Genesis 3. You know, right after the fall, uh, Adam and Eve rebel against God and they fall. And what does God do when he comes to Adam? He curses the ground, doesn't he? He curses the ground. And in essence, what God is doing is cursing. He's putting a curse on the workplace. The workplace is going to be difficult. And the workplace in Adam's day is the field. And the Lord says that thistles and thorns are going to grow in the field. Thorns. And I think the significance of this is here Jesus is wearing a crown of what? He's wearing a crown of thorns. He is a king who has been crowned with the curse. Does that make sense? And we know that this date plant, I mean, all the commentaries, every commentary I have in my office talks about the thorns that are in this date plant. Some of the thorns grow to 12 inches in length, we're told. So here's this really jagged uh, crown or wreath, if you will, that's placed on his head. Um, so he's wearing the crown of the, he's crowned with the curse, if you will, and he's arrayed in verse two with a purple robe. Purple is indeed the color of royalty, and they're mocking him, they're ridiculing him. Um, in verse three, they came up to him saying, "Hail, King of the Jews!" They strike him with their hands. What are they doing? They're humiliating him. And I think that's part of that. That's that's one of the points. I think what Pilate is hoping for is if Jesus is humiliated enough and that crown of thorns being placed on his head along with the blows that take place to his head, driving the thorns into his head, would have put blood on his face. It would have disfigured his face. Um, bringing him out like that as Pilate does in verse 4, he went out again to the crowd. He said to them, see, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. 
And verse 5, so Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, behold the man. I think what Pilate is hoping for is some sympathy from the crowd. They're going to let him go. Pilate has washed his hands of this. He can move on. Take a sigh of relief. Um, But Pilate speaks much more deeper than he knows. Notice he says, behold the man. I almost made that our scripture memory verse this morning because it is so significant. Behold the man, not just any man, but the son of man. Not just any man, but but the second Adam. The last Adam. I mean, if we take Romans 5 or, and 1 Corinthians 15 and we take the light of those passages and we shine them on that, who is Jesus? He is the second Adam, the last Adam. Adam was in a garden. Adam was, was tried. Adam failed. Jesus is in a garden and he's victorious, isn't he? And here he is. Behold the man. And furthermore, let's think about the beginning of John's gospel. The word became what? The Word became flesh. He is the God-man who has dwelt among us. And Pilate says, Behold the man. Everyone, look at him. Behold the man. Pilate is speaking much deeper than he even knows. And in verse 6, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. And here we can start to see Pilate is getting, he's getting impatient with them. There's no love between these groups. We've already brought that out. And Pilate is getting impatient. He says, take them yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And this is really just a sarcastic outburst because they don't have authority to crucify him. Believe me, if they did, they had already done it. They're not, at, they're not visiting Pilate early in the morning because they like Pilate. Nor are they concerned about uh, the welfare of the Romans. That's not what they're about, and Pilate's aware of that. There's no love between these groups. And um, the Jews answer him in verse 7, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. Now, they're pointing to the fact that they have a law. This law in itself is significant because, as I said last week, the Romans allowed their, their, um, their subjects uh, to carry out their own local laws. They gave them a lot of liberty to do that, and they would enforce those laws to a point. As long as those laws didn't contradict a Roman law, and as long as it was understood that Roman law was sovereign over those laws, Pilate is, you know, peace is in his hands. He is the one who's responsible for peace. So when they say we have a law, Pilate has to listen to that. Now, that's not enough leverage to get, to get Jesus crucified, but they see Pilate is teeter-tottering, and they're trying to use this as another, another point of leverage just to push Pilate over, if you will. They say, we have a law, and according to that law, verse 7, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. And how does Pilate react to that? He is filled full of fear. Why is he filled? You know, Pilate's much more awake here than the rest of them. You know, here we have, here we have a, a man who's rooted in paganism, who's highly superstitious, who believed that occasionally you came across a person who was actually divine. And I think at this point, he's fully believing Jesus is one such person. And now he's getting wind that Jesus had made himself out to be the Son of God. He is filled full of fear. And furthermore, the other Gospels, Matthew tells us that his wife had had a dream. It said, don't have anything to do with that innocent man or that righteous man. Pilate is shaking. He's trembling. 
We're told he's even more afraid. So he rushes into his headquarters in verse 9. He says to Jesus, where are you from? That's an interesting question. Where are you from? Jesus is silent. Just like he was before Caiaphas, huh? So Pilate says to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus breaks the silence and says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had not been given you from above. Now, we need to spend a moment on this verse. Now, what's going on in this verse? Oftentimes, this verse, this verse 11, is used to form theologies of the relationship between church and state. And I want to make the argument that that's not what's in view here at all. Um, oftentimes, it's used. Uh, too often, I think what we do is we draw a straight line from verse 11 to Romans 13. You don't need to turn there. I'll just read it for you. Uh, many of you are familiar with this passage. But in Romans 13, verse 1, Paul tells us, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now, what does that mean? That means all spheres and levels of authority are in God's hands. Uh, he, he, he raises up kings and he, and he lowers kings. We know that from the Psalms. We know that from the prophets. We know that from the book of Daniel. That's one of the messages, the primary messages of the book of Daniel, that the Lord raises up nations and he causes nations to fall. We know that. Uh, and that is a true statement. But that is not what's necessarily in view here in verse 11, chapter 19. Jesus answers Pilate and says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. And a lot of times what we do with this, and I, I, I did this for a long time. I, I've been convinced by uh, D.A. Carson and his arguments that um, we shouldn't draw that straight line here. This is not about the relationship of church and state here. When Jesus says you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above, what D.A. Carson points out and what a number of other scholars are pointing out is the word authority, which is feminine in the Greek, does not match the verb given, which is neuter in the Greek. What's that mean? That means Jesus isn't talking about the authority that's been given. Jesus is talking about the situation that has been given. Do you follow the difference there? Let's, let, me, let me give you an illustration. Now, suppose that one of us is a judge, and okay, today's Sunday, we're off, but tomorrow morning, when you go into your courtroom, somebody's going to be the very first case somebody's going to be brought before you. Now, we would say that's no accident, whoever that person is, and whatever that situation is, well, you as the judge, now you have a responsibility, don't you? You have a responsibility to carry out, to carry out justice with that case. And what Jesus is saying to Pilate is saying, listen, you're the one who's been sovereignly chosen to be sitting and presiding over this case. That's what's been given to you. And you'd have no authority me over you would have no authority authority over me at all if that wouldn't be in the case. And this, therefore, is not a lesson in regards to the relationship between church and state, as it is a lesson to the magistrate or the president or the senator or whoever you want to call him, the governor. Because what Jesus is saying is saying, Pilate, you better proceed cautiously. 
because you're going to be held account for what you're about to do. That's the meaning of this passage. Does that make sense? And you can imagine Pilate's trembling at this point. So, so what? What in the world is this? Well, Jesus says, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. A lot of ink has been spilled about who is the he. When Jesus says, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin, who is he referring to? It's singular. He. It's not they. It's he. Who? Who is being referred to? We might think of Judas, and there are, there are interpreters that say, oh, it's Judas, you know. But Judas isn't the one that hands Jesus over to Pilate, is he? So, oh, I know who it is. It's Caiaphas. You know, it's probably that's where uh, I think in terms of books I have on my shelf, most of them land on Caiaphas. But one thing I found curious, at least with the books that I'm privileged to have, is nobody brought this up. And I, I, I just throw this out there as just something that I think, and you can do what you want with it. But I'm just wondering if Jesus isn't making a reference to the evil one here. I just wonder if it isn't a reference to Satan himself. Because he is the one ultimately behind all of this, isn't he? He's singular. And we know that before Jesus, or before Judas rather, betrays Jesus, we know that he is Satan fills him, doesn't he? You remember that verse? You remember that? In chapter 13 when we were studying that? And we also know that when Jesus was debating with his opponents all the way back in John chapter 8, he told them that they were children of who? He told his opponents they were children of the evil one. They say, your father is the evil one. They say to him, we have, our, we have a father. He is Abraham. And Jesus says, if Abraham were your father, you'd be doing what Abraham did. Your father is not Abraham. Your father is the evil one who is a murderer and a liar from the start. So I just wonder if it isn't Satan who is in view there. He who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. And of course, that would... By a collective singular, that would include everybody, wouldn't it? Everybody who is opposed to Jesus, wouldn't it? I throw that out there. You can do what you like with it. Caiaphas is the normal answer, though, that's given. Um, in verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, and listen to this. I mean, they're, they're putting more leverage, on, more leverage on, on Pilate. If you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Now, this would, have put the, this would have put terror into Pilate's heart because this particular emperor who was emperor at that time, was, it was not hard to make him suspicious. In fact, some of the history books say, just whisper the wrong thing in his ear and he'll have you executed. Uh, these were very, very paranoid. Uh, he was very paranoid and suspicious of anyone that could challenge his position or station uh, or life for that matter. So Pilate recognizes the danger of this. And verse 13, when Pilate heard these words, well, that's the clencher. He, um, he brings Jesus out, and he sits down in the judgment seat. So he has his servants bring out the judgment seat. Pilate takes his seat um, at the place called the stone pavement in Aramic Gabbatha. That's verse 13. In verse 14, we're told it's the day of preparation of the Passover. Um, this is, uh, in all likelihood, this, is, this preparation is the preparation for the Sabbath, the Passover Sabbath, which would put this on Friday. Uh, they already had the Last Supper. That was done Thursday night. Uh, Jesus and his uh, disciples eat that Last Supper. We're going, to, uh, we're going to be looking at that in communion, aren't we? 
Uh, that happens Thursday night. These proceedings are taking place Friday morning, which is the day before the Sabbath. And we're told it's about the sixth hour. Now, some people, um, some people are really troubled by the fact that John says it's about the sixth hour. Mark says it was about the third hour. And some people say, wait a second, okay, what's the third hour? That's about nine in the morning. What's the sixth hour? That's about noon. So John is saying it happened about noon. Mark is saying it happened about nine. But one thing that we got to remember, you know, is that like when we have meetings, when we have session meetings, one of the first thing we do is we record the time. So when we look at our minutes, we see that the, okay, last, last month's meeting started at 6.09 or last month's meeting started at 6.10. How would you do that in, in this period of time? You know, I mean, at best, um, even if you had one of like Fred Flintstone's watches, you remember the little sundial wristwatch thing? Those were pretty cool, but no one has got digital watches. No one has a cell phone. It's easy for us. The clerk of session just looks at his computer, and there's the time right there on his screen, but they don't have that. And John is making a theological observation here. He's showing by showing at the six hours. It's about midday, and what he's showing is that Jesus really is the Lamb. He really is the Lamb who has come to take away the sins of the world. Does that make sense? Now, um, verse 15, uh, well, in verse 14, we're told that it's the day of preparation of Passover. It's about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. And that's, that's our scripture memory verse this morning, Behold your king. Um, let's just think about this for a minute. At this point, uh, at this point, Jesus um, may or may not have had that flogging, but perhaps have had that more severe flogging. Uh, and at this point, what does Jesus look like? He's probably so disfigured that it's beyond human resemblance, which is what, pro was what Isaiah prophesied about him 700 years earlier. That's why we read 52, 13 through 53, 12 this morning. And there Jesus is being presented. Uh, there is your king. And notice how they respond in verse 15. Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. I just want to conclude with one, one thought, if you will. It's a well-known passage that we're looking at. But I want to conclude with one thought, and it's this. Everybody in this passage thinks they're free. The high priests think they're free. They say as much to Jesus, don't they? We've never been in bondage to anyone. Yet, when you think about it, they're in bondage to Rome. They're in bondage to their sin. They're in bondage to their place. We've looked at that, haven't we? They want to get rid of Jesus because they're worried if Jesus goes on like this, the Romans are going to come in and take their place, right? These are elites. They're worried about losing their place. They're so intoxicated with it that they're in so much bondage to that they can't even see. They can't see straight. And you see all of these levels that they're, they're, they're just so bent on hatred that all they can see is getting Jesus crucified. They're hardly free. And what about Pilate? Is Pilate free? Pilate's in a vice, isn't he? 
You can almost envision Pilate being on a vice that goes three ways. You've got the high priest and all the people that are in his courtyard yelling, crucify him, pushing against him. You've got the threat of Caesar pushing against him. And he has Jesus pushing against him. Now, Pilate has an opportunity to get free. Everyone who's of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus has given him an out. All Pilate has to do is say, I see no guilt in him. And let him go. And then say, Jesus, I want to talk some more. Let's talk. But that's not what he does, is it? He's being pressed. Oh, he boasts of having freedom. Don't you realize I have authority to crucify you, Lord? Or authority to let you go? He thinks he's free. What about those in the courtyard? Do they think they're free? And for that matter... How about us? The only person that's free in our story is the one who is wearing the chains. And all of those who believe in him. Amen. Heavenly Father, Lord, we see the amazing liberation that comes from Jesus submitting himself to the chains, submitting himself to this mistreatment, submitting himself to Roman trumped-up law, submitting himself to this kangaroo court, submitting himself to the corruption of these leaders. All of them are corrupt. Oh, Father, we see also in this that Jesus is the only one who is truly free And Father, we recognize the great lesson from this, that the only way we're free is to be in bondage to you. What is Jesus doing? Carrying out your will. And we will only find freedom too insofar as we surrender our hearts and our lives to you. And here we see that Jesus will wear that crown of thorns. He will take the curse upon his head. He will go to the cross. He will take the lashes, and by his stripes, all who put their faith and trust in him will be healed. Oh, Father, we see where freedom lies. Freedom lies in the chains of Jesus. Oh, Father, we thank you for this. Fill our hearts with this afresh this morning, Lord, that we may know, that we may see, that we may have the ability to discern. Oh, Father, that we would not be blinded by sin, that we'd be blinded by the things of this world, but that, Father we would see you, and we'd see you clearly. In Jesus' name, amen.